This episode is one of the deep dive modules that we run every single week for Propane Protocol members. Occasionally we like to post these out as podcasts so that we can share the love, but if you want full access to all of these inside our flagship program to optimize your physique, diet, mindset, habits, productivity, and much more, then join the Propane Protocol at propaneprotocol.com. Upgrade yourself. Irritable bowel syndrome. It's one of those, I thought it was just me, conditions. So I've had a lot of requests for this one. Now, remember, before I go into this, I am not your doctor. So if you have any concerns from what you see raised in this presentation today, then make sure that you see your GP, book in. If there's any kind of red flags or anything that's just not quite normal, then do not hesitate. Um, so, irritable bowel syndrome. This was asked originally by Lorita, and a lot of other people jumped in as well and said, yep, me too, please do something on this. She says, I'm struggling with IBS, and I'm trying to single out exactly what it is that makes me feel so bloated. I'm just full and sick of it. I'm starting to think that it might even be water. I know it sounds stupid, but I drink lots of water without thinking, and I'm aware that it's an anxiety thing, and I do the same at the gym, but I'm not sure. I've been trying cutting out foods and eating less volume and so on, and still struggling with IBS. So to start with, what is the definition? IBS is known as a functional disorder of the bowel. That is to do with the way that it functions, the interaction between the brain and the gut, but not necessarily any kind of um, organic problem in the tissues of the gut that we can find, that we can currently detect with uh, the level of medical imaging that we have. So there's three main types. There's constipation predominant, diarrhea predominant, or mixed. All very unfortunate. So this affects up to 20% of people. So actually, it's very likely that if you ask this question, you've been asking on behalf of some other people as well. Now, I'm going to go over how uh, IBS comes about, what some of the main predominant theories are with how things trigger it and, and what's been going on. What are some risk factors? What are the signs, the symptoms, possible investigations? And also, what are the confirmed evidence-based treatments for IBS that you can try as well as going to see your GP. So the pathophysiology, how it comes about. Now, there are a lot of hormone receptors in the gut. There's in fact more serotonin receptors in the gut than there are in the rest of the body combined. So what ends up happening is that if there is a overexpression of receptors in the gut of any particular hormone, you can have a lowered threshold and a very high propensity to react to what would be normal stresses in day-to-day -day life and cause the gut to start squeezing or, or relaxing or just generally affecting the motility of the gut. <clears throat> Some hormones, but not all of them, that are involved in regulation of, uh, of the motility of the gut are corticotropin-releasing hormone, that's the precursor to cortisol, as well as serotonin, that's the big one. That's why literally when we feel like you've got butterflies in your stomach, this is the um, the gut fibrillating in response to uh, neurotransmitters being released. So serotonin, one of the kind of falling in love hormones, uh, GMP, IDO enzyme, um, and estrogen as well. So all of these things are <clears throat> partly responsible for affecting intestinal permeability and also motility as well. Now, the reason why 
if there is some kind of disruption in these neurotransmitters or some, as you can see here, the vagal, vagus nerve or sympathetic, parasympathetic dominant um, effects that are happening and affecting the way that the gut moves, the reason that that causes diarrhea, smelly farts and disrupted motility is that if your gut is not mobilizing properly, carbohydrates are going to sit there and they're going to ferment for longer than they need to. What's going to happen then is it produces more gas and then diarrhea and constipation in waves, depending on the predominant factor that you have. And certain hormones will have more of an effect on making you diarrhea predominant versus constipation predominant. Quite a lot for a Sunday morning, I know. So increased gut response to stress. So this can cause pain as well as uh, disrupted motility and also parasympathetic tone. So the sympathetic, parasympathetic are the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. So the nervous system that we're not aware of, and they basically regulate the fight flight or the rest and digest response. And if they are slightly out of balance in any way, not necessarily from any doing of your own, then that can have a number of downstream effects on your skin, your level of stress, your gut, your mood, your recovery levels, your ability to gain muscle, to lose fat, all of these things are affected by this, unfortunately. John Sarno, he wrote a book about back pain, which is really fascinating. It's a little bit outdated now, but he talks about a syndrome called tension myositis syndrome. And he correlates people that suffer from tension myositis syndrome, which causes back pain, with a number of other stress-related or personality-related traits. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So this includes things like heartburn, hiatus hernia, uh, peptic ulcers, irritable bowel, spastic colon, constipation. So all of these factors he thinks come in a cluster with patients who have a type A personality and are quite perfectionistic. I think that's really an oversimplification, but there are some truths to it in that the stress response is oversensitized in these people, and so they manifest in such kinds of personality traits. So some myths about IBS. It's often uh, one of these conditions that carries a lot of shame with it, and it's, it, it's unfortunate because it shouldn't, but people often come away with thinking that it's all in their head, and that they're crazy, and uh, that the doctor thinks that I'm lying or that I'm wasting his time and that there's no treatment and I just need to get on with it. Now, a lot of this comes from the Cartesian model of mind-body medicine, that the mind and the body are somehow completely separate entities and that um, if you have something in the mind, then that's just because you're crazy. And if you have physical symptoms that they can't find a cause for, then it must just be in your mind. Now, the truth really is that the mind-body classification was only done for conceptual ease, only done so that we could study the different processes that are going on because we don't fully understand them. But the truth is the mind is in the body, and that's not even a woo-woo statement. I mean, physically, the nervous system extends to the tips of your toes. So to say that there's a separation is not quite true. And to say that it's all in your head, again, this is not true. You have physical symptoms, you have physical pain, and it's not that the pain isn't real or that it's imagined, it very much is, and it's because the gut is not functioning in the way that it should. So what are some risk factors? Yes, there are some psychological risk factors, but again, they manifest in very physical symptoms. So 60 to 94% of people that have IBS have had some form of 
affective disorder, so depression or anxiety or psychological stress and trauma. And interestingly, it tends to be the more mild forms that are associated with IBS and not the more severe forms. Female sex, so again, being female is another risk factor. It doesn't mean that men can't get it, but just women are slightly more prone to it. Um, like with a lot of diseases, unfortunately, I think women get a bit of a, a, bad, uh, a bad hand dealt to them with this. Gastrointestinal infection, so having a preceding infection in the gut, whether it was from traveling or um, just eating some dodgy food or whatever, that can actually predispose you and send the the um, the motility of the gut and the receptors and everything else off kilter, send it off whack. So 7 to 30% of cases uh, of IBS have been found to have some kind of preceding GI infection. There is a association with sexual, physical and verbal abuse as well. Um, the actual number is debated, but that's another factor, as well as pelvic surgery, eating disorders, having had antibiotics in the past, because these will clear out the gut flora, the, the resting bacteria that sit in your gut that help to process food. And if you disrupt the balance of them, sometimes what can then um, infiltrate or can become the the new um, the new kids in town can not function quite as well for the gut. And so we do need to take some measures to restore that, which I'll get onto in a moment. <clears throat> also, 50% of people that suffer from IBS also suffer from other functional disorders, such as chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. So chronic fatigue syndrome is one of those uh, just generally being tired, it used to be called ME, myalgic, myalgic encephalitis, um, but they changed the name because itis implies inflammation and there isn't an inflammation that we can find. Uh, but fibromyalgia as well, which is just widespread muscular pain. So these are some risk factors. Now, the signs and the symptoms, what people tend to experience when they have IBS are tiredness, lethargy. They get sometimes get back pain and that cannot even be pain that's radiating from the gut into the back. They get disrupted sleep. And again, this is explainable from the hormonal processes that are going on with IBS. Headaches, irritable bladder as well. So having increased urinary frequency or urgency, or even feeling like you've got incomplete voiding, like you go for a wee and you still feel like you still need to go for a wee. Painful periods, pain after sex, and allergic symptoms. So all of these have some kind of physiological explanation because mast cells, the ones involved in allergy, are overly sensitized. They're triggered when the other processes of, of IBS start going off as well. Now, just because you're experiencing some of these symptoms doesn't mean that you definitely have IBS. And it's important to look at the differentials, the other potential things that, um, that this could be. We have IBS's big brother, which uh, often gets confused for it, which is inflammatory bowel disease. These diseases are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Now, the difference really is that ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease produce a lot more pain and they produce blood in the stool. There will also be some inflammatory markers that you can see or some changes to the tissue, some ulcerate, ulcerations or lesions in the colon and gut um, that you can see from uh, imaging with these two diseases, whereas with an irritable bowel syndrome, you don't. Infective, so uh, post-infective diarrhea, for example, again, this has also become a risk factor for IBS. But if it if it's prolonged for over six months or a year, then you might not start to think maybe it's not quite the infection that's still going on. Maybe something else is. 
intolerances, so lactose and celiac disease can often go undiagnosed for years. And people just think that's their that's their baseline, that's their standard state. And it's a shame because then you end up uh, constantly irritating your gut with foods that uh, your body can't process. As well as metabolic disease, so you have gallstones or peptic ulcers, gourd, any number of abdominal issues that can cause this as well. And also some other functional ones. So there is such thing as functional diarrhea or pain gas bloat syndrome, also known as mid-gut dysmotility. You know, I've got some dysmotility at the moment, I'm hiccuping. Um, but these are very similar to IBS as well. Now, I cannot, or, or, or you cannot diagnose what you have without seeing a doctor. If you have recurrent symptoms like this, it is definitely worth going to see someone and making sure that you rule it out. Do not feel the shame. Do not feel the sense that it's all in your head or that you're wasting your doctor's time because often symptoms that present like this could be something worse and it's very important to rule them out. What the doctor might do is do some investigations. And again, the purpose of this is to rule out other causes <coughs> of what's going on. So they would maybe take stool samples. Fecal calprotectin is the one that they would take if they suspect irritable bowel syndrome or, ir or inflammatory bowel disease. Now, it'll be elevated, or elevated as, the, as they've put here, um, if you have a raised fecal calprotectin, so that's a stool sample. There's also blood tests for things like uh, celiac disease, so including TTG, or tissue transglutaminase enzyme, uh, as well as if any of those are raised or if they have a further suspicion, they might put you through a colonoscopy, which is a camera up the bum. Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss or muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, The Propane Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propanefitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Now, what are some complications of IBS? Unfortunately, functional disorders tend not to self-resolve on their own in general. About 10% do, but the rest of them, we really need to start taking some active measures to improve things. And an unfortunate complication of this as well is the depression, the anxiety, the self-hatred that comes along with IBS. And yes, I mentioned this was a risk factor, but also it may be that simply by always having to be near a toilet, always having uh, intermittent diarrhea and constipation and uh, embarrassment that it causes with partners and everything else, that it develops into a, a the the ruminative thoughts that come out of chronic disease, the the sense of uh, loss of self esteem and so on. So these are quite significant. We need to um, be aware of them too. People who have IBS are slightly more likely to develop inflammatory bowel disease later in life. 
Now, again, the statistics are not clear on this, but there is a higher chance. I think it's multiple times more likely. Dehydration, simply because of excessive diarrhea. Uh, if the, the gut is moving too fast and it's pulling a lot of water with it, or you're just not able to reabsorb some of that water, then you may be dehydrated in the process. Impacted bowel as well. So if you have constipation predominant IBS and you've got loads of poo backing up, then that's going to impact the bowel as well as potentially hemorrhoids from lots of straining too. So there are some very uh, real complications that can come about from having IBS. And this is really why we want to make sure that we're managing it as well as we can. Now, there are some confirmed treatments with this the first ones, so I'm going to go from conservative to less and less conservative. The first thing is dietary. So the standard approach is to eliminate FODMAPs. FODMAPs are the more fermentable uh, oligo monosaccharides and polyol foods. What they tend to do is because, as I mentioned before, when they sit in the gut for a long time, they start to ferment more and more. These can eventually become, um, someone's just asked, can you sort these symptoms by diet? Well, yes. So uh, three more comments as well. Ain't it the truth? <laughs> yeah. So these FODMAP foods are particularly prone to developing gas in the large intestine and creating the bloating, the distension, the excessive puff puffs, uh, excessive farts and, uh, and flatulence that, that go on there as well. So by eliminating them, you can eliminate some of the symptoms or some of the things which are making all of this worse. So here are some examples of FODMAPs. Hopefully you can see that. So apples, pears, um, fructose, corn syrup, lots of lactose-containing foods, milk, yogurt, ice cream. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry, but it's all of the good stuff. Cereals, artichokes, beetroot, garlic, cabbage, chickpeas, lentils, um, avocados. So that there really is not much uh, stuff that... Um, I mean, you, this is something you have to be quite deliberate about and really write out a list of things that you commonly eat that might contain FODMAPs and figure out how you can eliminate them. So the way to approach this is you restrict to begin with. So you take everything out and then you systematically reintroduce each type of one. Maybe even do it through the mnemonic FODMAP. So reintroduce some fermentable foods, then reintroduce oligosaccharides, and disaccharides, etc. And as soon as you see a resurgence of your symptoms after sort of three or four days, then you've maybe found something that's the culprit. You know that that is then something to adjust later on. Things that are suitable on a low FODMAP diet. See, annoyingly, they've got avocado on both lists there. But anyway, <clears throat> we have bananas, grapefruit, um, lactose-free milk or the milk substitutes, spelt bread, certain cereals, the gluten-free ones, as well as uh, dextrose, so honey and uh, glucose rather than fructose. Also, some people find that onion and garlic is a particular trigger. So that's always something to watch out for. Um, it's It's not one that you would immediately jump to and it's very easy to you go to any restaurant or anything and there will be loads of onion and garlic in the foods. Also caffeine. So trying to reduce your caffeine, your lactose and your fructose intake will be very helpful as well. If you haven't seen our Instagram post on uh, breaking your coffee addiction, this is very helpful. So start with a three week approach. Week one, you have, let's say you're having three coffees a day. 
9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m. For week one, you substitute your 3 p.m. coffee with a decaf. Week two, you substitute your midday and your 3 p.m. coffee with a decaf. And then week three, you're drinking all decaf. It's the most painless way to reduce your caffeine, and you're still drinking the coffee, you're still getting a lot of the, um, the sensory hit that you're getting from it just on a decaffeinated basis. And I know some people, Johnny included, think that decaf tastes worse. I think this is like people that say Diet Coke tastes worse or that they hate Diet Coke and they love normal Coke. I think that is a placebo effect. So drugs that can be used for IBS. Now, antidepressants surprisingly have a uh, have a beneficial effect with um, IBS. So they found with lots of systematic reviews, meta-analyses, that diarrhea-predominant IBS responds well to tricyclic antidepressants, and constipation-predominant IBS responds well to SSRIs. So that's the standard Prozac, uh, sertraline kind of drugs. So and tricyclics would be things like amitriptyline. This is quite interesting, and again, it supports the idea that what is happening in the gut is a um, disruption of the neurotransmitters that affect the gut, particularly serotonin in this case. So they have been developing more targeted treatments towards managing the specific serotonin receptors in the gut, 5-HT4 and 5-HT5 agonists. Um, These are emerging, they're probably going to be out on the market in the next few years, but these are looking promising. As well as symptomatic relief, we can use antidiarrheals or uh, smooth muscle relaxants. So things to stop your diarrhea would be the standard uh, loperamide, which is known as Imodium, or Mebeverine as well, smooth muscle relaxants. Again, I wouldn't buy these over the counter. I would make sure that you see your doctor to confirm that there isn't anything else going on. Taking antidiarrheas um, when there is an infection can be very, very dangerous. So we want to rule out a potential infection. Supplements. So some things that you can take are probiotics. So particularly Bifidobacterium infantis is the strain that is shown to be helpful with IBS and improve some of the symptoms in it, as well as glutamine. What glutamine does, and you can buy this from a sports supplement shop or my protein or whatever, is that it repairs the gut endothelium, reducing its permeability uh, and its pathologic permeability and then improving the symptoms of IBS. So actually repairing the lining of the gut itself, very helpful in the long run. Vitamin D, we know that uh, 82% of people that have IBS are deficient in vitamin D. Now, whether that's cause effect, I don't know, but it's quite an interesting thing to notice. Um, The, it's not, unfortunately, if you give those 82% of people vitamin D, it doesn't improve all of their symptoms. Uh, Some people find it does, but some not. But ultimately, we should all be taking vitamin D. There's no real downside to doing so. Um, I would recommend a fat-soluble vitamin D3. Vitamin B6, similar situation. Low intake of vitamin B6 is associated with irritable bowel symptoms. And another thing that you can try supplement-wise is peppermint oil. Again, for symptomatic relief, just kind of slightly antispasmodic, antispasmodic and helps with the, the feeling in the gut as well. Now, psychological therapies are helpful for IBS, including hypnotherapy, CBT, and psychotherapy. Also, if you check out module 9.3, there is a great self-work process that you can run through that uh, a lot of clients have had a huge amount of success with, so check that out as well. Finally, exercise. So we want to believe that exercise is the great 
healer is the great elixir of everything, and it certainly is for across multi-system benefits. But for IBS particularly, it's only been shown to be helpful for constipation-dominant IBS, and not so much for diarrhea-dominant. If you have mixed one, maybe it'll help with the constipation side, but really the, if you're listening to this, you're probably doing some exercise anyway, so I'm preaching to the converted. Sleep hygiene. So again, we know that uh, there is a dis- there is a d- disruption in um, sleep processes in people with IBS. Um, they have worsened NREM sleep, I believe. So um, this is partly from the brain-gut axis that's been dysregulated and again is supported from this corticotropin-releasing hormone effect as well. So improving your sleep hygiene, checking out our Sleep 101 video and podcast will help as well. Again, all of these things just have so many benefits that it's a no-brainer to not get your exercise, your sleep, your vitamin D under control. So that's it for IBS. Guys, let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, if you have some, if you want some further reading, you want to learn more about this, then check out the video that I've done on how to poo better. This isn't directed towards IBS specifically, but it just is general advice on improving your poo, as well as checking out the NHS website, nice guidelines. If you're interested in more of the more developing research on IBS and on the gut, check out BMJ Gut Journal, as well as selfhacks.com. That's um, selfhack.com is just like this biohacker guy that has just dived right into a lot of the research on um, the gut, the brain gut axis, lipopolysaccharides, IBS, all of that kind of stuff too. So that is it. I hope that is helpful for you guys. My final advice would be if you have any of these symptoms, go to see your GP, um, inform yourself about what's been going on, think about what the differentials are, and then try out some of the potential self-treatments as well. So particularly the dietary stuff, the the elimination diets. Um, and if things are really not improving, then you can maybe look start, start looking down the, the drug and supplement route as well. All right, guys, thank you very much and speak soon. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. So we have an opportunity for you, something that we have put together that is totally free, that is a synthesis of everything that Yusuf and I have learned in fat loss, muscle gain, nutrition, training, lifestyle, habits, the works. Everything that you hear on these podcasts, condensed and more, condensed into a synthesis of seven days of learning and immersive experience to totally overhaul, enhance and accelerate the results you're getting currently in your training and your nutrition, no matter how advanced you are or aren't. We put together a virtual learning interactive coaching experience called the seven day kickstart that you can take part in whenever you're ready to. To join, simply go propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart, enter your details and you'll be sent everything that you need. You'll be coached by the Propin Fitness coaching team over seven days for free. You'll get seven days of content sent to your email completely for free. And it gives you a look behind the scenes of what we do with clients and gives you a ton of information that previously was only available to paying clients inside of our world. So propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart to take part and we hope to see you inside. See you in the next episode. Speak soon. Show, show.